Good day, and welcome to another episode of the University of Minnesota Extension podcast, Minnesota CropCast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Nikolai, University of Minnesota Extension educator in crops, and I'm along with our co-host again today, Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension soybean specialist. And Seth, uh, we're kind of a roller coaster of weather here we've been riding recently. Uh, some places got rain, some places are still dry, and some places, unfortunately, got a little bit of hail uh, with, with that. So how does this all mix together? And maybe we could talk a little bit about if you're one of the unfortunate folks and might have gotten some hail or know of somebody, are, are we too late in the year? Can, can soybeans recover or, you know, actually yield the crop or should we just wait for crop insurance? Well, I guess to start with um, just the hail question, uh, we'll actually we'll start with the water question. So dry, it's been dry. I think we've, we're all happy to have some uh, weather events come through. It's nice to at least see some things happening when we see these 50% chance of rain. Uh, locally, it's good that we get, get a little bit of rain out of it. But unfortunately, a lot of these things didn't have a lot of rain, but they had some hail in them. So uh, you get kind of the worst of both worlds. You get not a lot of rain, but you get hail with, with some of these heavy thunderstorms. So moving on to the hail piece, uh, yes, it's a really, uh, this is a better time of year on, on both corn and soybean for uh, hail rather than just a little bit later. Um, uh, we're approaching, we're in this, we're in this, uh, these R stages, but it could be worse, uh, in soybean. We tend to think about R 5.5, which will be occurring here in the next few weeks, um, as, as kind of the, the worst time, uh, for, for hail and soybean. Um, of course, even worse yet could be when we have, or just about at maturity and we can shed, um, we can shell the, the beans out of the pod. Um, uh, which is more the case with small grains this time of year. Um, and we'll, we'll address that maybe later, but anyway, I guess I'm coming around to the idea that yes, it could be worse. Uh, but certainly we're at, at kind of a, a tough time for soybeans. They're going to put on a few more leaves at the very top of the plant and that allows for some recovery. Um, but not a lot, but there is time for the soybean to actually, um, recover in terms of putting seed on. So, we're at a we're at a point where, uh, depending on leaf loss, we could be up to fifty to sixty percent. But that that would take a really heavy hail, with near a hundred percent yield loss or leaf loss at this time. Typically, you know, we don't get a lot of hail uh, except associated with storms and 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 thunderstorms. And and recently, there have been those events. Uh, you know, the concern is this next week we're going to be really hot with uh, this whole high pressure and this warm temperatures, which could set us up, you know, for those situations with that. So it's probably a good reason why, you know, typically in hail adjusting and so on, they typically would recommend to farmers, I think, Seth, to wait a little bit before making that overall assessment. And they typically they, they do, it could be seven to 10 days in terms of uh, growth. But again, we're here at the end of July. So your, your options are somewhat limited. Yeah. There's not much we can do for management. And in fact, you know, the reality is most hail adjusters may make an adjustment on corn at this time of year, and then they may just wait on soybean. And I think that reflects on the fact that, you know, soybean just tends to recover uh, and have variable recovery, depending on what kind of weather we have later in the season. So I think it, it, it pretty much exemplifies why it, it's important just to be patient and, and, um, 
and um, um, not be too concerned about it. But of course, from a marketing standpoint and things like that, I think farmers do need to be at least um, aware of the situation and know that they have some, uh, could adjust some of their yields downward a little bit. Well, certainly, as we talked about earlier, the moisture makes a difference. There's a lot of variability across the state on another uh, situation on different crops that affecting corn and, and soybeans. And that's why I want to uh, turn it over to our guest today, Dr. Kevin Smith, University of Minnesota, a plant breeder, because you can grow other crops in Minnesota other than corn and soybeans. And I think, Kevin, you've proven that. In fact, why don't you talk a little bit about your uh, academic position here at the University of Minnesota in terms of developing these other crops, and then we're, we're going to probably jump back in time a little bit. But uh, bring the folks up to date in terms of what you're working with currently in terms of your title. Sure. So I'm a professor here in the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics. I have been here 24 years now, if I counted correctly. Um, and uh, during that time, I have been leading breeding efforts in barley uh, and more, more recently in oats and also um, a uh, crop domestication project working with a, a species called Silphium integrifolium, or its common name is silflower, which is a, a, a perennial, what we hope will be a perennial oilseed crop um, developed from uh, a native prairie plant from the central part of the U.S. Well, you indicated that you've been here for quite a few years. Maybe bring us up to date a little bit about your own background, where you grew up at, and some of your academic background, and, and uh, how you arrived here at the University of Minnesota. Sure. So so I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, not too far from here. Um, did not grow up on a farm. So uh, my parents, my mother was an artist and my dad was a scientific glassblower at the Mayo Clinic. So um, my interest in agriculture really came about um, as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. So I was a botany major there. Um, I got a summer job in the Department of Plant Pathology started working on um, snap beans and a disease of snap beans and really became aware of um, agriculture and agricultural research and really got excited about those possibilities. Um, worked with some breeding programs while I was there. Uh, after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I actually stayed on as a technician in the Department of Plant Pathology for almost five years, um, working on a number of, of different crops, including uh, potatoes, snap beans, um, and even ginseng to some extent uh, in Wisconsin. And then I, I started my master's and PhD actually at the University of Wisconsin as well uh, in their plant breeding program. And in those degree programs at my master's, I worked on cucumber. And on my PhD, I actually worked on tomato. So no small grains in, in any of that training. Um, the first small grains work I did was was as a postdoc when I came to the University of Minnesota as a postdoc for about a year before I took on the faculty position that I currently hold um, here. Some of the folks might be familiar with, with some of the names of people that immediately preceded you, but um, not to do a lot of name dropping, but there's some very famous and very innovative plant breeders. Sure. So I, I uh, replaced Don Rasmussen. So he was a breeder here for 43 years, um, had very productive uh, program over those years produced a number of barley varieties that really dominated the acreage in the Midwest. So he was a really important contributor to uh, barley breeding and barley agriculture in the Midwest for sure. Uh, I actually overlapped with him for about two years, which was fortunate for me because I had not 
worked on any small grains prior to coming to the University of Minnesota. So it was a really good opportunity for me to learn from him about the crop, about the way that he was approaching breeding, uh, and about all of the challenges that existed at the time when taking over that program. And so on the oat side, I believe, was it Dr.? Yeah, so Deanne Stuthman was the oat breeder for almost as long, I think. I can't remember quite as many years, but pretty close to the same number of years. Uh, he retired, and then the oat pre- pre- program was uh, dormant for really six or seven years. Um, there was some interest in restarting the program um, in part through PepsiCo was interested in supporting public plant breeding or public oat breeding in the Midwest because they would like to see more oat production in the Midwest closer to the infrastructure, the milling infrastructure here. Most of the oats that they uh, purchase now come from Canada. So with that investment, um, I decided to restart that breeding program, um, was able to get some grants from other places as well. And so that's been you know up and running for about eight years now. And graduate students, you have a program in that as well, obviously, besides the, the breeding efforts? Yeah, I regularly train graduate students. I have one right now, which is kind of a low peak for me, but I've had as many as six at a time. So it's varied uh, over over the years. Um, but also a really important part of my job is to um, work with and train graduate students in plant breeding. Well, I think I need to rein this discussion in and have it a little bit more methodical here, and, and maybe we could work through the crops. So let's, let's start with barley. Uh, what, you know, what was barley like 24 years ago in this state? And you know, we'd already seen, um, you know, obviously the peaks. I, I'm having a little bit of trouble remembering 24 years ago and, and what the barley acreage was like, but certainly you came in at a time after really some of the heyday um, uh, of, of the crop. Um, but what was, what was your approach in those early days and what were you thinking about and what, where did you think barley was going to go? And, and, and maybe, 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 and then maybe turn that around and, and what have you done with the crop and, and how has that approach changed, especially more recently? Sure. So uh, when I started here, um, the program was primarily focused on, well, entirely focused on spring six-row malting barley. So malting barley is the main uh, target for most farmers in the region. That's where they're going to get the most money for their crop. Um, And as I mentioned, Don Rasmussen was very successful at releasing varieties that were six-row spring malting types that did quite well in the region. of course, there were many acres, over 2 million acres of barley at some point in the state, um, quite a bit less than that when I started. And a lot of that decline in acreage was due to competition with other crops, but also due to a, a really devastating disease, Fusarium head blight, that hit the Midwest and actually many parts of the U.S. And it's still a major disease problem that uh, both uh, barley and wheat breeders are working on uh, to this day. So, um, but yeah, so when I started, it was all six rows spring malting barley. Um, but then there have been some changes over the years. Um, one of those is about, well, maybe about 10 years ago, we started getting a signal from uh, the malting and brewing industry that there was a, now a preference for two row malting barley. So for those that don't know, um, there are two sort of, I, I would call them market classes of barley, a six row and a two row. Um, and it basically refers to the, the architecture or the structure of the spike. Uh, in a six-row spike, you have a, a, row, a row of six kernels that surround the, the rachis or the stem of the spike. 
Uh, in two row, you just have two rows of those kernels, so you have fewer kernels per per spike. Um, two rows will typically compensate for that by producing more tillers, so they have approximately the same number of kernels per plant. Um, so, and, and it's interesting that there's only one gene that determines the difference between two row and six row, but those are maintained as separate breeding programs. So you typically have breeders that just breed either two row or six row. So switching from two row to six row sounds like it might be a simple task. And actually, I had some conversations around um, doing gene editing to just maybe just flip our program from six row to two row. Um, but of course, it's not quite that simple. Um, the, the breeding histories of those two programs are quite distinct. And even when you make crosses between two rows and six rows, you get quite um, large segregation for many different traits. So I began the process of um, converting the program or redirecting the program away from six row to two row to respond to that change in the industry. Um, and I did that really by, by just using germplasm from all over the U.S. It was facilitated by a very large USDA uh, CAP or uh, Coordinated Agricultural Project um, that allowed us to work collaboratively with lots of different breeding programs um, and then basically utilize all that germplasm to build a new program uh, for Minnesota. So we are at the point now where we have um, advanced lines that are very close to being released as a, as a variety. Um, they need to go through, malting barley needs to go a fairly ex through a fairly extensive testing program with the industry uh, where you actually commercially malt and brew um, lines and determine if they're suitable for industry. The malting and brewing industry is pretty finicky about which varieties they want to use, and they have a, a very specific and limited list of varieties that are approved. So to get on that approved lift list, you have to make it through their testing program. And so we have one, our first two-row line has made it through that testing program, and we're sort of ramping it up and doing more commercial-scale plant evaluations to um, hopefully get that variety released soon. And the, and the industry is still looking for the two rows, I assume. So this is still, you, you mentioned that, you know, that they, they gave you a target and, and give you some input. Um, and is that still, the, you know, the, with the lag and the time it takes to build that program, are they still... Is it still a good market, look like a good market for you? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really important question for plant breeding because it takes eight to 10 years to release a variety. So you can't, you can't just uh, turn on a dime uh, with these sorts of things. So yeah, the industry is still interested in two-row. Um, the large brewers, the uh, large brewers that are, we call them adjunct brewers because they typically use malt in combination with corn or rice. Um, they used to really like uh, a lot of six-row in their blends because six-row varieties tended to have higher enzyme activities to break down the starches in those adjuncts. Um, but because most of the barley production has moved west, where mostly two-rows are grown, they have adjusted to that and are using more two-row. Also, the craft brewers um, you know, have, have really risen to prominence in the last 10 years. And they are typically what we call all malt brewers. So they don't use adjuncts in, in their brewing for the most part, except when they put you know pineapple and pumpkin and strange things like that into their beer. Um, but they, use, they typically use all malt, which is generally better accomplished by using two-row barley malts. And how, how is the industry um, with this movement you know, you have consolidation among the big guys, Consider continued consolidation against the very big companies. 
and you have this this kind of upwelling of you know more and more volume coming from the smaller folks um how does that meet how does that reality meet with a program like yours and the targets and and I mean, assume that you're mostly the end, you know, your end users are the maltsters, I assume, that are supplying um, the malt for these folks. So um, is that what give me a flavor for how that change has, has occurred and, and how that might affect your your MO? Yeah, so um, a fortunate thing about working in, in malting barley is there is a consortium of maltsters and brewers that work together collectively to identify what the different targets are. And there's really good communication between the barley breeders, the mostly public sector barley breeders, and the industry. We meet, you know, every other year in a conference. We're updated as to whether there's sort of new targets that they're looking for. And generally, their targets don't change that quickly. The, this is sort of abrupt change from six row to two row is the most abrupt change, I think, that's really happened. But um, they keep us very well posted on sort of what things they're looking for in terms of quality. And there are at least 12 or 13 or 14 different quality parameters that we actually look at in, in, in malting barleys that we have to keep an eye on. So that communication has really been helpful to make sure that we're on track. And is, um, is there an opportunity for marketing uh, with some of these smaller um, 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 brewers and, and, and maltsters to, to, to identify, you know, to separate themselves as, as, uh, as, as suppliers that they want to have something kind of unique. Is there an opportunity? Uh, you know, we, we talked to Jake Youngers last week and we talked a little bit about, uh, Kernza and Kernza beer and how that can be, uh, that is utilized by, a, you know, a very small number of brewers as to, you know, from a sustainability standpoint. So is there any kind of marketing side that you can tap into? I think there is. I, I, one of the things I'm trying to do is to scale, uh, try to scale the program a little differently to work with some of those smaller maltsters and brewers. Uh, historically, the program has worked with, you know, the big brewing companies. And just to give you an idea, when we do a plant scale of brewing and evaluation of a new potential variety, we need to grow that variety on like 300 acres to do one malt batch. So that's, a, that's hard for a breeding program to scale up that quickly. So one of the things I'm working on now is to try to work with individual growers and some of the smaller maltsters, and even RAR, which is a large maltster, they, they have the capacity to do things at a small scale as well, to, um, to try out some of our newer advanced lines to see if they have some interesting characteristics that might be interesting to uh, the craft brewers and not necessarily the exact profile that the large brewers are, are defining for our group. Um, one of those, one example of those is naked barley. So we, we have had a little program producing or breeding hullless or naked barley. Um, and, and very simply, it's uh, barley where the hull uh, comes fr- threshes clean from, uh, from the kernel during harvest, similar to wheat. Normally, uh, barley is covered. Most of barley is covered. And that's important because in the brewing process, the hull is actually uh, important in the, in the filtering process of brewing, in the, what's called loudering. And so... Um, so naked barleys would be sort of a new ingredient for brewers. Um, and we actually worked with uh, a local maltster, Vertical Malt, in northern Minnesota. They, they made a large uh, malt batch, well, a, 
a small malt batch for a big maltster, but large enough that we could actually distribute that malt to a couple of local brewers and they could try it out and sort of give us their feedback. We actually shared some of it with Northern Brewer, which is not a, a brewer, but they're, they're a, a home brewer supply group. And um, they like to play around with barley varieties and create uh, recipes. So they did an experiment with, um, with this uh, naked barley where they brewed a 50-50 batch with naked barley and covered barley compared it to the traditional covered batch. It both as a lager and an ale and did some taste testing and a little bit of evaluation. It was really an interesting project. And I'm hoping to build on the, that project and come up with some other ways to engage smaller brewers or even home brewers to do some kind of like citizen science, almost brewing evaluation. Well, with a name like Naked Barley, I mean, it's got a built-in marketing program. So the brewers are going to love it. Whether it's any good or not, I think you should be able to produce it and sell it. I think it's, I think it's a winner. Yeah, the brewers mentioned that that would be a pretty easy thing to market. All right, we've talked a lot about barley. I, I, I could talk barley and beer all day because I don't know enough about it, but I, you know, I know just enough to be dangerous, so I think we probably should move on a little bit. Do you want to talk about oats, Dave? Well, yes, I think you know enough to sample the product itself. I, I, know, I know what I like and what I, I know the definition based on what I like, yes. So Let's talk a little bit about the grower or the, you know, the farmer in this situation uh, with that in terms of not just seed increase, but just growing the crop. And, you know, we have uh, various legal situations, varietal protection and so forth. How does that play in the Minnesota crop improvement? Can you speak to that a little bit about that? You know, I can remember back to the good old days, a farmer would, I'll save the seed and plant it next year. Uh, what can you and can't you do nowadays? How is that regulated? Yeah, so typically the way we would reduce, uh, release a variety from the University of Minnesota is a, is a public release through Minnesota Crop Improvement Association. And so what we would do is give them, our breeders, seed. They will uh, increase that seed and produce uh, foundation seed, and then they will make that seed available to certified seed producers. And then those certified seed producers can actually sell and market the seed. Um, so that's that's sort of the public release model. That's what we've operated under really my entire career until very recently where we've discussed uh, uh, some sort of licensing options. But the way that we can protect those varieties is through PVP or the Plant Variety Protection Act. And that um, basically allows growers to, as you say, save seed, but they can save only enough seed to replant the equivalent number of acres that they purchase certified seed for. Uh, so they cannot, you know, just start selling seed on their own. And the reason we do that is to protect the integrity of the seed. We want varieties, I mean, particularly for malting barley, uh, maltsters want to know what variety they're uh, malting. So they, they can't just take any six-row variety or any two-row variety. They want to know which variety because they know exactly how to malt it. So protecting it through PVP and by purchasing certified seed, that's one of the ways that you can or preserve that identity all the way through the supply chain. But there's a limit in how long you can save seed on a continual basis, is it not from a quality perspective? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a practical limit, right? So if you're saving your own seed, um, you know, even that's what we do in our own breeding program. So we, we will produce seed and we'll save seed from year to year, but we'll have disease problems show up. So um, you can get some, uh, some seed diseases that will show up that you need to treat for. Um, you, you have problems with purity, maintaining seed purity and that sort of thing. So so um, saving seed is something that you can do, but it does require some effort to make sure that your disease or that your seed is disease-free and that it's um, pure. 
Well, you know, we've had some really hot temperatures this year. Sometimes it, it varies. Uh, we get high dew points. What are, what's some of the one or two bigger disease issues that you have to deal with in terms of the development of the program? Not, maybe just not just barley here, but maybe we can segue into oats and, and so forth. Yeah, so um, small grains are no strangers to diseases. There are, uh, in barley, we have you know, easily half a dozen diseases that we are mainly concerned about on a yearly basis. For oat, it's really crown rust is the main disease that we're interested in. And um, each of the diseases have their, have their own challenges. I mentioned Fusarium head blight. Um, that is a disease where, from the breeding point of view, it's been very difficult to breed for resistance. There are no silver bullets. There are no big single genes that you can breed into a variety that will give it resistance to that disease. Tends to be Resistance tends to be controlled by many genes with very small effects, and so that means a sort of a slow progress of developing resistance. For crown rust, on the other hand, with oat, is entirely different. So that disease can be strongly influenced by a single gene. So you can deploy a single gene and see a very striking resistance uh, reaction where you get nice, clean leaves. You don't see any pustules. The problem with it is that disease resistance is overcome very quickly. And what we've seen in oat is that you release a variety with a new resistance gene. Uh, you can get good resistance for maybe five years. And, and then that will be just as susceptible as everything else. So there's this kind of roller coaster where you're kind of boom and bust cycle with deploying resistance in in oat with these major resistance genes um, because they eventually get defeated. And so we're constantly looking for new ones. We're also looking for things that we call slow rusting. So they they are um, usually controlled by different kinds of genes or combinations of genes that will give you sort of a moderate level of resistance, not complete resistance or immunity. Um, and the hope with that kind of resistance is that it has more longevity and it's not going to disappear you know, within five years. So are you making your crosses the same way Don Rasmussen did maybe 30, 40 years ago in terms of that? A lot of, you know, handwork or what's, what's the technology changed in, in actually physically making the crosses in, in the breeding effort? Physically making the crosses has really not changed. Um, I have been very fortunate to have technicians that have been with me since I arrived here. And they are experts at making crosses and every other aspect of the breeding program. And they really are the sort of heart and soul of the breeding program. They keep it running on a day-to-day basis. And that technology really hasn't changed. What's mostly changed, I would say, from the time of Don Rasmussen is the way that we use data and the kinds of data that we use. So we collect huge amounts of data on different traits. We also collect lots of different genetic marker data. And we have, have various ways that we're using those data to decide which parents we should cross and how to select uh, from progeny from those crosses. I, I think we need to talk about oats. Um, what, um, you know, and I get, you know, I, I, um, I really appreciate the science here, and I, I think a lot of our listeners would probably really appreciate knowing more about the breeding technology and what you do, but I think there's a lot of folks that just probably haven't grown oats for a long time or haven't seen a lot of oats on the landscape, and so while you're here, um, since you're invested in, in oat as a crop, what do you, what do you see, what, what's happening in oats as, as a, in terms of demand, in terms of consumer use, and, uh, and what do you see, where do you think it's going to go? I assume this has something to do with gluten-free and whole grain type applications. Is that 
where the continued demand is, or is it is it for oatmeal, or or what are we what are you thinking? Yeah, I I mean it's hard to predict sort of where. I mean, there's also oat milk, right? So there there are lots of different interesting products out there that are that utilize oat as a food product. Um, our program has really focused on that sort of food aspect. So I mean, it's also used as an animal feed. It's used as a forage. Um, people like to use the straw. So all of those are important end uses of of oat. But what what I've tried to do since sort of rebooting this program is to really focus on the the uh, food uses and the milling uses. So we we evaluate you know protein content. We evaluate the milling efficiency. We look at beta glucan um, because those are the characteristics that are really important for the different food uses. Um, and I think that's that's where I hope some of the future will go. I think the the demand is really up to the industry in terms of whether they decide they're going to start sourcing oats from Minnesota and the Midwest. Um, and I know that's something they would like to do. It certainly would reduce their carbon footprint and transportation costs and things like that, which are really important, I think, for that industry. Um, but I also think it would be a great way to support another crop to go into the rotations in the Midwest and so break up some of these rotations and and, and get some of the benefits that we know about that come from introducing small grains into, say, corn, soybean rotation or other kinds of rotations. Is there any, anything about the oats that we grow in Minnesota that's uh, forestalling that from happening, Kevin? I guess in terms of expanding that, that mark demand, some innate quality uh, aspect that we have to try to overcome in a, in a breeding program to, to get there? Um, nothing that's insurmountable. I think we just have to catch up a little bit on, you know, like protein and beta-glucan. Those are things that... Um, there are Canadian varieties that are probably more superior in that re- regard, but we're making progress. Those are traits that are fortunately easy to measure and easy to select for and improve. And so I think that those things will come along. Um, the disease resistance I mentioned, the crown rust, is a is a an issue in Minnesota and less so in Canada. So that's something we have to stay on top of as well. I'm actually going to go to this week. I'll be going to a there's an organization called Glo- Global that is having a field day at Fargo, North Dakota. And so essentially all of the Midwest's um, uh, oat breeders and other researchers are meeting there for two days to talk about a lot of these same topics. Really, the reality, I think, isn't the, the, the challenge, I think, against you know the Canadians is that we're, we're in Minnesota, we're competing against corn and soybean acreage, right? So yeah. revenues from those crops. But uh, you've looked at some of these more diverse systems. Have you looked at oat as, um, you know, in a double crop situation? Are you working with uh, any of the folks on Forever Green or others that are, are looking at crops maybe the, to follow uh, oat in, in some, some of these systems? Well, in oat, um, not so much in oat. I mean, we did a little pilot experiment. We did an intercropping experiment with uh, peas and, um, you know, our first experiment, we had some a little bit of a learning curve, but there is a group. There's an internet, or there's a national group of of workers that are trying to organize around looking at um, intercropping systems for oat, and so that's why we we did this preliminary experiment. Um, in barley, we are looking at sort of a double cropping system. So we have a. I also started a winter barley program, and that was started about ten years ago, or actually closer to eleven years ago. Um, and we did release a winter barley variety a year and a half ago called MN Equinox, um, the first winter barley that's come out of Minnesota. So winter barley hasn't really been a crop in Minnesota. It's barley in general is not hardy enough to survive our winters. Um, it is further south or on the coasts. Uh, so 
that starting that program, our goal really was to try to look for a way to have winter barley fit into cropping systems that create what we call continuous living cover. And so that fits in with the Forever Green Initiative, which I think you talked about a little bit about last week with Jake. Um, so these continuous living cover systems are either perennial grains or uh, a combination of winter and summer annuals that will create that continuous living cover. And so so we have winter barley program. We're making progress on improving winter hardiness, which is our main challenge. Um, and then this year we do have a really interesting experiment where we're we're actually employing double cropping with soybeans. So we uh, we planted winter barley last fall. We harvested that barley um, June 28th and replanted with beans right after that. And that that um, those beans are growing right now. We're comparing that to conventional long season beans and. Um, we're going to sort of measure the parameters of that system to see what value there might be, understanding that we're obviously going to have a lower soybean yield from a system like that. But in combination with a malting barley winter malting barley yield, it might be a very uh, profitable system that actually can deliver some of the ecosystem services that we hope um, we can deliver with things from like Forever Green. Yeah, and, and maybe you aren't aware, but our two two of our technicians ran into each other and we found out that we were running the same project uh, on St. Paul campus that we, uh, I was looking at it from the soybean side and, and your group was looking at it from the barley side. So it's kind of a, it was kind of a loaded question on my side to ask about that, but we are, we are uh, definitely attacking the same uh, question. I, we, we call it uh, intensification of the soybean rotation. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, I think we're looking at the same thing. I, we should, as long as we've, we're on this topic, I think, uh, in terms of winter covers and perenniality, I think we definitely need to talk about the sillflower, sillflower question and, and where you started with that and, and, uh, how far you've gotten and, and what things look like today. It's a, uh, you know, this seems like, um, you know, a domestication project to me just seems like a too big of a long of a challenge for somebody with a, that's a, it's it, that who is as attention deficit as I am. Uh, so I'd like to hear how, how you got into this and where you are, what kind of progress you have. Yeah. Well, so it is interesting. I mean, if you look at barley, it was domesticated, you know, 30,000 years ago and, and really Silphium in about 20 years. So we, we started working with the land Institute, which is a nonprofit research organization that is focused on developing uh, perennial crops. And um, I was approached by some folks from the Land Institute. We started talking about some of the crops that they were working on and um, put together a grant to work on this Silphium project. So they have done, you know, several cycles of breeding down in Kansas where they're located. We started, we sort of clonally propagated some of that germplasm and brought it here to Minnesota planted it at lots of other locations. And I, my first graduate student to work on Silphium did a really nice project sort of looking at what sort of variation, how well will this grow in places like Minnesota? Um, so it's been really interesting to see. It's a native prairie plant to the, to the Midwest, but you don't really see it in Minnesota. I think its native range extend, extends to the very southern part of Minnesota. But we have some really nice yield trial plots growing in Crookston, for example, and they, they seem to do quite well. Um, so, as you know, it's a, it's a very early domestication project. Um, I will never see probably, you know, real varieties grown on the, on the landscape. But we are doing um, breeding work with it now. We're selecting for traits that will make the plant behave better in an agricultural system. So shorter stature, easier to ha- harvest, 
Um, but basically the plant, um, you can think of it as, as a perennial sunflower with many, many sunflowers on it. So it shoots up lots of stems with lots of small flowers. Um, the seeds are small. They're probably half the size or so of a sunflower seed. Um, but I think there's a lot of potential to select for, you know, larger seed size and other characteristics that will make it uh, a more harvestable crop. I guess at this point, uh, any other last comments, Kevin, that you might have in terms of um, what the future holds and uh, in terms of your work, graduate student technology, if you had a, had a goal in looking down the road here five, ten years, uh, what would you like to see the future develop? Well, I guess I would hope that um, some of the newer challenges that we're looking at in agriculture from the perspective of plant breeding, like continu uh, continuous living cover, like winter cash cover crops, um, like developing cropping systems that deliver some ecosystem services, help, uh, help improve soil health, help pr protect water quality and things like that. I think those challenges are appealing to students that are coming into our programs now, and, I, and, I, and it's kind of ignited their imagination about what agriculture could be and what they can do through agricultural research. So, you know, my big hope is that that excitement continues and grows over the years. So we see a much broader, more diverse group of individuals coming into, uh, coming into our programs and being the, the future of agriculture. So we've talked a little bit about graduate students. Dave asked you a little bit about your graduate students. So, but you do have a teaching appointment. So tell us a little bit. We should round this out as academics. We always have to talk about your full appointment. So tell us uh, what what you're teaching and what you enjoy about teaching, and and maybe maybe extend on this idea of uh, how to recruit and how how we can support students here at the University of Minnesota. So I teach two courses. Uh, one course is basically the introductory plant science course for our plant science majors. So I see all of the new students that come into our program. Many of them are actually transfers. So it's interesting, um, maybe about a quarter of our students sort of come in as, as freshmen wanting to do something in plant science, but most of the students in our major actually transfer from other majors and discover the plant science majors after the fact. Uh, so that course is really interesting because you're, you're really engaging with students early on in their interest in plant science. Um, I've really taken that course and tried to make it more of a, a skills-based course. So we really focus on, on writing skills and also how to read the literature. So I think it's really important that all students at the University of Minnesota can go to primary scientific literature and read it and understand it and use it to inform themselves uh, there's all sorts of different places people can get information these days, but what I try to instill into these students is that the primary science literature is vetted, peer-reviewed, and as solid as you can get. And your ability to engage with that is really going to be helpful for you throughout your career and beyond. Um, so we focus on that. Um, and then um, and we also focus on on writing skills, too. So and And a little bit, well actually quite a bit on, on working with data. So I, I get them to work with data and literature early on so that they can use those skills in the rest of their, uh, the rest of their time. The other course I teach is a, a senior or an undergraduate thesis writing course. So it's kind of the end, the other end of the book bookshelf where um, I work with a small number of students. It's usually only two or three students per semester that are writing a thesis. And we basically go through the process of how to write that thesis. 
Well, thank you very much, Kevin. We appreciate uh, you taking the time to visit with Seth and myself here during this uh, episode of the University of Minnesota Extension CropCast. Um, and certainly opportunities here, uh, not only for graduate students, but undergraduates as well at the University of Minnesota. So we're always hoping to, to build that program with a good, good skill set. Uh, we do some things and activities, and we are right now out in, out in the field here a little bit with even our our 4-H and FFA youth, so hoping to instill that that uh, curiosity uh, to keep on going uh, with that. So good luck here. We're in uh, the tail end of uh, July, and uh, we've got a little ways to go to get that crop in, so hopefully the weather will be with us, and, uh, and you'll be a success in the program. So thanks again uh, for your time today. So this is Dave Nikolai along with uh, Seth Nave at the University of Minnesota Extension, uh, an episode of University of Minnesota Cropcast.